Well, if you are familiar with Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, you'll remember this famous plot where a woman by the name of Hester Prine is found guilty of adultery in a New England Puritan community, a very religious place. And and they find out that she has committed adultery when she conceives and bears a daughter, all while her husband is supposedly lost at sea. So the community, in response to this outrageous act of sin, forces her to wear a scarlet letter, A, on her chest. So that wherever she goes and whatever she does, the story of her infidelity travels with her. Well, for those of you who haven't read it without giving away too much of the story or plot analysis, I think one of Hawthorne's aims in the book is that as we consider the public shame of this woman and also the private shame of some of the other characters that are unearthed as the plot develops, that that we would come to a greater understanding of our own sin, of our own shame. There's a famous quote from the author that asserts that if the truth were everywhere to be shown, a scarlet letter would blaze forth on many a bosom. This is one of the truths that the author wants to come out of this work. Well, in the prophetic book of Hosea, and particularly chapter 1 as we consider it this morning, we find, by way of a scarlet letter, so to speak, God sending a message to his people, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. And he wants them to come to realize their own infidelity to the marriage relationship that they have entered into with God himself by covenant. The problem is is at this point in history, Israel has presumed on God's election and essentially thought themselves to be Uh, beyond wrath. But here in our text this morning, we find that that's not the case at all. So God sends a message. And Hosea goes to tell the people that their time has run out. That God's forgiveness will last no longer. And he does this not only in an oral prophecy proclaiming to the people, but his own life acting as a portrait whereby Israel might see themselves. And I want to argue this morning that not only is Israel to see themselves in this portrait, but we too are to see ourselves. So this morning I want to consider this text under three headings. One, a wife of whoredom. Two, children of whoredom. And finally, Offspring of promise. Well, if you think about the prophets of the Old Testament, this probably isn't a job that you would encourage your children to engage in. I mean, this is a fairly unpopular position, right? Being the bearer of bad news is not all that fun. Although I've met some folks that it does seem to be enjoyable for them, but I suppose that's another story. I mean, if you think of Isaiah's call, this famous call where he sees, he goes into the presence of the Lord, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me, what shall I do, O Lord? And what does God say? He says, well, you'll go to a people and they won't listen. 
they could really give a rip about what you have to say, but that's your job. And throughout the Old Testament, we find this job of the prophets, many of them persecuted, certainly difficult lives, but I would argue that Hosea's call is unique. For not only is he to be the bearer of bad news through proclamation, but his life is to be a picture of the bad news that God has for his people. We see it right in verse 2. God's first words to Hosea are what? Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom. I mean, this doesn't seem like the best career move for a budding prophet. But as we see, God has a plan here. Hosea is called to preach to the northern kingdom. And he will do so by embodying the covenant relationship that God has entered into with this rebellious people. In other words, Gomer, Hosea's wife, is to be a picture of the nation of Israel. And Hosea, the prophet, is to be a picture of God. Hosea is to go out and to marry a woman with adulterous proclivities. One who will end up acting on such proclivities. Going out and being loved by other men. Many other men as we'll see as you read through the entire book of Hosea. And you can imagine this marriage ceremony, right, where they're reciting their vows, and Hosea promises to love and cherish his bride forever. Gomer promises the same, and yet Hosea knows that on their very wedding night, she will leave for someone else. She will seek another bed. Now, this seems like a grotesque image for anyone with any level of decency, but I think that's, that's the point. And it is the point because this is the story of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, idolatry, specifically breaking the first commandment, is compared to adultery, is compared to prostitution even. Exodus 34, God paints the picture of worshiping other gods as marital infidelity. He says that Israel will whore after other gods. This the same Hebrew root that we find in how God refers to Hosea's wife, a wife of of whoredom. Israel will time and time again show herself to be unfaithful, though she has taken vows. Though she has promised to be faithful to God, time and time again, she will reveal herself to be quite the opposite. Only verses after God has made his covenant with them at Sinai, saying, you are my people. To you I will show mercy. They go off while the marriage vows are still echoing off the walls of Sinai to make for themselves idols. Indeed, showing themselves unfaithful on their very wedding night. It will happen time and time again. And God will time and time again forgive them. He will show mercy. He will call them back to themselves. In fact, God seems to No, of course he knows it's going to happen. But he says it, right? 
in Scripture. He, he says when in this transition between Moses and Joshua, God tells Moses, he says, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods. They will forsake me. They will break my covenant that I have made with them. Jeremiah prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah makes the same accusations. And God will speak to them through Jeremiah saying, even though I was their husband, they broke the covenant. And Hosea's marriage with Gomer is a picture of this. He is to marry a woman that is unfaithful for the land, or more precisely the people in the land, commit great whoredom by forsaking the Lord, the passage tells us. When we read the scriptures, we find that Israel's story is in a lot of ways a recapitulation of Adam's story and his unfaithfulness. Well, in a lot of ways, it's also a foretelling of our story, isn't it? That, that we are, by nature, an unfaithful people. Pastor Jesse, a few weeks ago, as we've been moving through Galatians, preached on the topic of idolatry. And if you are like me through that sermon, coming to grips with, yes, I have idolatrous proclivities. I can agree with Calvin when he says the human heart is an idol-making machine. Placing work or family or money or politics or whatever else above Christ who has entered into loving covenant with us. Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. So looking back a few weeks ago, what, what do we cling to? What do we run to when we are in need? Tim Keller says this, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortless, effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. And that is a damning statement. Well, if God reveals the infidelity of Israel through this marriage, he shows the judgment that is due to his people through the naming of children. So if first we have a wife of whoredom, second we have children of whoredom. Verse 3, let's look together. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now if you'll recall, this verse is pointing back to this uh, this time where it's, it's, it's covered in, in Second Kings and this great defeat of the house of Ahab and, and these rulers that had led Israel into idolatry, particularly Baal worship. And so God calls Jehu to go and defeat, to, to annihilate the entire household of Ahab in the valley of Jezreel. And that's what this, this phrase is, the blood of Jezreel. 
Well, at this point in Israel's history, Jezreel had become synonymous with a decisive and bloody defeat. I mean, we, we have phrases like this in our own vernacular. You can say, man, last night's game was a bloodbath. And we know what that means, that there was a huge defeat. Well, Jezreel had become a similar term. And whenever you use the term Jezreel, because of this battle, you would know, okay, it's referring to a bloody and decisive victory. Now, this verse poses some translation difficulties, but I think the best way to understand it is that God is saying that in the same way that I brought about a decisive victory in Jezreel, on account of Ahab's idolatry, I will now do the same thing to Israel because of their idolatry. Jehu, at God's call, brought an end to Ahab's house, and now, ironically, because of Jehu's house and their sin, God will bring about the same end, an end to idolatry. And as he so often does, he starts by taking aim at the king, this king in Jehu's dynasty, namely at this point in history, Jeroboam. And as the story goes and history unravels, we know that this happens for Israel, that they are defeated by the sword, specifically by the nation of Syria. And Hosea is to name his son Jezreel as a picture of this great defeat that God is going to bring about against the leaders of Israel because of their betrayal. But God does not only take aim at the nation's leaders, does he? I mean, we see often in the history of the kings of Israel that when bad kings come up, God puts an end to them and he raises up other kings. And especially as we look at the northern kingdom, there's not much good to say about these northern kings. Well, finally, that cycle is to come to an end. And not only will the king be taken out, but the people will be cut off. The people, too, will be held to account for their sins. And Gomer's second and third child will be named according to Israel's judgment. Lo Ruhamah and Lo Ami. No mercy. And not my people. I appreciate the uh, trend of naming children after Old Testament figures. These are not too, that you should probably follow that trend. These two names represent an undoing of God's promises. Not because God is unfaithful, but because the people are unfaithful, because of their law-breaking. God, after bringing these people out of bondage, out of Egypt, displaying his mercy calling them his own people, his holy nation, a nation of priests, his his own possession. God now, through the name of these three children, says, I will cut off this people like I cut off the people in Jezreel. I will show mercy no longer. And you who were once my people are no longer my people. I will not forgive you as I have done for so many 
generations. God has given his people opportunity after opportunity to come to him. He has shown great patience and long-suffering. He has shown the mercy by putting up with their sin for generations. But now he's had enough. And here we find God using the language of divorce to speak about his relationship with his people. They are no longer his. Israel will see exile from the land and from their God. It's worth noting here as we walk through the text in verse 7 that there's this inclusion about the house of, of Judah. If you'll recall at this point in the history of God's people, the nation has been divided. It is now the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And verse 7 says that God will have mercy on Judah, the southern kingdom. He will save them. If we look at the history, relatively speaking, Judah has better kings. They've been more faithful. And yet, we will find that they will follow the same pattern. So for now, Judah will see mercy, but they too will be cut off. Several hundred years later, they will fall. Jeremiah the prophet uses the same type of language. In fact, see, he points to this situation when speaking to the southern kingdom. He says, she saw for all the adulteries of that faithless one. So he's speaking to Judah. He's like, you saw the faithlessness of Israel. You saw it. It was, it was, it was clear. And you saw that I issued a decree of divorce. And then he says, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. The, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, end up in the same position, showing themselves unfaithful. Both Israel and Judah will fall because of their idolatry, one to Assyria, one to Babylon. And left to ourselves, we too will be cut off. And this picture of exile is really the picture of our lives without Christ. But thankfully for us and for the faithful remnant among the divided kingdom, the prophecy does not end here. So on our last point, I want to consider an offspring of promise. Verse 2, or verse 10 rather, begins with, what I call a gospel conjunction, yet or, or but. And these are often really good words in the Bible because they, they turn from judgment to an announcement of mercy. But God being rich in mercy would be a great example of that. Well, the prophet uses it here as well. As the prophets often do, they condemn the nation based on their disobedience to the law of Moses. This Covenant with a legal character. We, we talked a lot about this as we walked through Galatians. That there was a purpose for Israel's time under the law. And, and this would represent a time of Israel under the law. And that purpose was to show that without Christ, Israel and all of us are beyond hope. The exile is a picture of us without a Savior. But here we see that God will show favor to his people, not based on law-keeping, but based on the promises to Abraham. Where do we, where do we see this? Well, let's look at 
the wording here in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Where does that bring us to? What does that remind you of? Well, it takes us back to the promise to Abraham, doesn't it? We see this language directly in Genesis 13, Genesis 22, where God promises to Abraham that your descendants will be like what? Like the sand of the sea. Or like the stars in the heavens, which cannot be numbered and cannot be measured. God will be faithful to the promises he made to Abraham. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah And Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. Based on the promises made to Abraham, promises that were unilateral, not based on the people's faithfulness, but based on God's faithfulness alone, not based on works of the law, but based on faith, God says, based on those promises, I will reunite the kingdom. And I will do so under one head. That is to say, the promise of the eternal throne of David will be fulfilled. There will be one throne, there will be one people, there will be one head. One king. For God will again show mercy. And because of this mercy, and because of this mercy alone, they will be called children of the living God. God will do something at some point in history that overcomes the great adultery of his people. He will act in such a way that absolves a whoring nation and that welcomes them back to the family of God. Well, isn't this the story of King Jesus? (laughs) A king who comes announced as the son of David who will sit on a throne, who reunites this kingdom, not a kingdom of earthly measure, but a kingdom of heavenly measure. And he comes and fulfills this promise. And very specifically, Paul talks about this passage in talking about this gathering of the kingdom. And interestingly enough, he applies it to the ingathering of the Gentiles. Romans 9, 23 says, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known to you the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He goes on, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Jesus comes to gather his people. Pastor Jesse last week preached on the love of God. 
I think one of the most profound things that we see there about the character of God's love is that it does not come to seek the lovable. But he loves because of his own decision to to love. In our case, he did not send his son to find a better suited bride than Israel would be. One who have people who don't have propensity towards idolatry or people who behave better. That's not who Jesus came to find. He didn't come to say, I need to find some people who will be more faithful. In fact, as we look around, if we look at our own hearts, we find that he came to those with the worst proclivities. Proclivities towards idolatry, those of ill repute, those that on many days look as bad or worse as the nation of Israel itself. And Jesus came and placed his affections on those people, those which were unlovely. And Jesus comes and he molds out of that unlovely people a bride that he desires. As Luther says, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. Our new covenant marriage here that we are entered into today with Jesus the bridegroom is not different because Jesus came and found a bride that would be more faithful. It's different Because the bridegroom imputes his faithfulness to us. He gives us faithfulness. He gives us righteousness. He makes us faithful. Christ comes and gathers a people, no offense, they weren't first round picks. It's us. (laughs) And he makes them into a spotless bride. Not calling us to himself because we deserve to wear white, but because he is willing to dress us in robes of white righteousness. And though this seems mildly insulting, that he didn't come to love us because of us, it's actually good news. Because if Jesus came and saved us on our worst day, He will by no means turn us aside as we blow it time and time again. Because we are covered in his righteousness. C.S. Lewis says that the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good. But that God will make us good because he loves us. We as Christ's bride often look frumpy through the eyes of men, but through the eyes of faith, and indeed in the eyes of God, we are beautiful and spotless and clean because Jesus, by his Spirit, is making us such. In closing this morning, I want to briefly look at an odd end to this passage in verse 10. It says, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Well, Hosea doesn't understand the gospel structure. That Jezreel was supposed to be in the law section, and why is he including it here? It seems like a strange 
reference that the name of Hosea's son that was to remind people of God's decisive and bloody victory over idolatry, that would remind them of the cutting off of idolatry, idolaters, it seems to be a, a strange place to end. But Hosea is looking forward to a decisive victory. One in which idolatry will once and for all be conquered. And a bloody victory. But this time the unfaithful bride will not be cut off. But the faithful bridegroom. Christ dons our scarlet letter. He is publicly shamed on our behalf as he endures the defeat of Jezreel. A decisive victory over idolatry. And God calls his son no mercy as Jesus drinks the cup of wrath that we deserve. And for the first time in all eternity, Jesus is called not by people as God turns his face from his son. Jesus is cut off that we might no longer be called no mercy that we might no longer be called not my people. The death of the Messiah is not the Jezreel that the people of God expected, but it is the Jezreel that we need. For in it God has laid a cornerstone, Christ himself, and upon that cornerstone he is building a people. As we saw in 1 Peter 2 this morning, who says of people who have faith in Christ, you, you beloved, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He cites Hosea. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As you keep reading through Hosea in the following chapters, you'll find that he redeems his wife. Even though it doesn't often seem that Gomer is shaping up. But Hosea speaks of what she will be by God's making. A faithful bride. Hosea and Gomer's love story is our love story. Where one who is faithful marries one who is not. But through the mercy and kindness and grace of God makes an unfaithful and frumpy bride spotless and beautiful. And he does so through the washing of his word. He's doing it right now for us this morning. May God, through his spirit, continue this sanctifying process and wash us in his preached word this day. Let's pray.